Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is, it is God's throne, nor the, by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. I think that sums it up well, doesn't it? If you're going to say yes, then let it be yes. Follow through. If it's going to be no, well, there's no sin in no, but let it be no. As it said, you know, in that first in Deuteronomy, you know, what's gone from your lips, the Lord's going to hold you accountable to. And so if you're going to say, I'm going to do this for the Lord, I'm going to fast for him, I'm going to do whatever for the Lord, then do it. Then do it, but honor it, but honor it. But even if we never enter into such a formal vow of any sort, there are some important things I think we can learn from the Nazarite vow for our lives in Christ. There are three things that the Nazarite vow reflects that, that I think can help us live a more dedicated life to the Lord. First one, refrain from anything that impairs clarity of mind or dulls your spiritual senses. Let me say that again. Refrain from anything that impacts clarity of mind or dulls your spiritual senses. Now, Immediately what comes to mind is alcohol, right? It does. But it doesn't only pertain to something like alcohol. It can, it can pertain to anything that has a dulling effect upon your spiritual senses. You know, I, I generally, I'll be honest with you, and those who've attended here for years have heard me say this before, uh, I generally refrain from taking medication of any sort when I know I'm going to be standing in the pulpit. I, I'm not against medications. I'm not saying medications are wrong by any means. I'm just saying, especially when I'm standing in the pulpit, I want to hear what the Lord's saying. I don't want to be taking anything that will dull my senses. You know, I remember a, a while back, I had a doctor that had issued prednisone to me because I had some issues with my lungs. He gave me prednisone and it was a Wednesday night when we were still in our old building and I was sitting there and I noticed everybody was staring at me in the middle of the teaching and it was because I was doing this at my head constantly, constantly doing this. And I realized what was happening and it felt like I had bugs running through my hair constantly. It was the prednisone that was doing that. And I immediately got off and got finished teaching and I went to my doctor and I said, I can't do this. You got to get me off this. I don't want to take this anymore. It was too distracting, not only for the people, but it was distracting for me because instead of listening for the Lord's voice, I was doing this with my head, you know? Does that mean it's wrong for somebody to take prednisone? Absolutely not. That's between you and your physician. I'm not, this is not an anti-medication message, but it is to say, be careful of the things that we, we allow in our lives that can distract and can dull our spiritual senses. And that does lead back to a discussion. What about alcohol? I mean, what about alcohol? After all, you know what? There's no specific prohibition against the use of alcohol found in the Bible. Just warnings against excess, right? Everybody would say that. Warning is against drunkenness. Absolutely. And that is true. 
And yet we'd also do well to remember Paul's words because I believe they most certainly pertain to this very issue. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Let me challenge you a little bit this morning. No matter how little alcohol we consume, there is a power that it exerts over us. That is a reality. Consider what medical experts tell us. Impairment of performance begins at below 0.02% of blood alcohol content level. That, that's the equivalent of one to one and a half drinks can result in that level and impair performance. At low doses, the effects of alcohol may include alterations in mood, cognition, anxiety level, and motor performance. It may also impair performance several hours after the blood alcohol level has gone down. Even slightly elevated levels result in more fatal accidents, and the majority of individuals who experience a problem related to alcohol use, use are light and moderate drinkers. One to two drinks of alcohol impair mental and physical abilities. Mental processes such as restraint, awareness, concentration, and judgment are affected. Reaction time slowed and an inability to perform complicated tasks. One or two drinks. Even one beer or the equivalent of a beer's level of alcohol can slow your reaction and confuse your thinking. This means anything that requires concentration and coordination, like driving, is more dangerous when you've had even a single drink. Any blood alcohol level, even a blood alcohol content of 0.02%, the result of just one drink increases the risk of a crash, and alcohol impairs nearly every aspect of the brain's ability to process information, as well as the eye's ability to focus and react to light. Now, besides those physiological effects, think about the negative effects that alcohol has in our world today. There are more than 100,000 U.S. deaths each year caused by excessive alcohol consumption. Direct and indirect causes of death, including drunk driving, cirrhosis of the liver, um, falls, cancer, and stroke. At any given time, 25 to 40 percent of all hospital beds in America, except probably during the COVID periods, are occupied by people with alcohol-related issues and illnesses or spinoffs from it. Wow. 50 percent of all traffic-related accidents are related to alcohol. There are approximately 65 alcohol-related motor vehicle crashes per day, killing someone every 31 minutes and non-fatally injuring someone every two minutes. 20% of all freezing deaths, 25% of all choking deaths, 50% of all falling deaths are related to the use of alcohol. 52% of those injured in a fire are related to alcohol. 60% of all suicides, 83% of all murders, 69% of all drowning deaths, and up to 50% of all teen driving deaths are alcohol-related. In the last 50 years alone, more people have died from alcohol-related issues than those who died as a result of World War I and World War II combined. As one person said it, alcohol use is the most destructive force in America next to abortion. 73% of all felonies... 73% 
73% of all child beating cases, 41% of all rape cases, 81% of wife battering cases, 72% of stabbings are alcohol related. Alcohol use and abuse has been estimated to cost American industries up to $68 billion per year with absenteeism estimated to be four to eight times greater among alcoholics and alcohol abusers. In the workplace, one in five employees have reported injuries or exposure to dangerous conditions because of a co-worker's drinking or have had to go beyond their regular work responsibilities to compensate for an employee who is alcohol impaired. The economic costs of alcohol abuse in the U.S. as a whole are estimated to be approximately $185 billion annually. And I'd like you to note that the cost of treating alcoholism and alcohol-related medical issues cost us more than treating cancer. So you tell me, is the consumption of alcohol helpful? Does it edify? And, and, and even though many point to the Bible and say, well, the Bible doesn't condemn it. Yes, it doesn't. Let's consider, let's just consider that, though, for a moment. First of all, it is true, the Bible does not condemn it. Yet, the Bible does give us an awful lot of warnings about it, and, and some examples of the negative effects it had on the lives of God's people. Here are just a few to consider. Genesis 9. You can read the account today, but Genesis 9 gives us the account of Noah. Right after the sin was purged from the earth through the flood, Noah starts growing vineyards and ends up making wine and getting drunk. His sons see him uncovered, and the cycle of sin and destruction begins all over again. Genesis chapter 19 gives an account of Lot, when after escaping the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, his daughters got him drunk in order to have incestuous relations with him, in order to take matters into their own hands to create a lineage for themselves, with Lot being the drunken participant to their fleshy scheme. Leviticus chapter 10 gives us the story of Nadab and Abihu, the priestly sons of Aaron, who were consumed by God for offering, as the scripture describes, strange fire, which the following passage in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, seems to make clear was the result of alcohol consumption. Because from that point on, the priests are commanded not to do it when they're going in. Now, secondly, the Bible specifically prohibits some of it uh, from some from using it completely. Leviticus, as I mentioned, chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. Leviticus, I'm sorry, Leviticus 10, verses 9 through 11. It's forbidden for the priests. In number 6, 1 through 4, it's forbidden for those entering into a Nazarite vow, as we're studying here. In Proverbs chapter 31, verses 1 through 7, it's forbidden for civil leaders. In Isaiah chapter 28, verses 7 through 8, prophets are warned against it because, as it says there, it will cause them to err. How would it cause them to err? By impairing their spiritual senses, that clarity to hear the Lord speaking to them. As we think about the priests and the leaders and the prophets, I think we do well to remember what John says about us as believers of the new covenant. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, it says this, Revelation 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
I understand that the examples I gave to you were Old Testament examples, but yet when we look at those example of priests and kings and leaders, here we're told in the New Testament that that's what we are spiritually. It's what Christ has called us to. So look, my point in this this morning is not to guilt you out over alcohol use or to definitively say to you that the Bible prohibits you from consuming a drink. I'm not saying that to you. But I do want to challenge you to consider whether this is something that is really something that's appropriate for your life any longer as a believer. How, how does it spiritually help and edify your life? What's it doing to advance the kingdom of God in, in this world as, and, and the, king, the cause of the gospel in your life? How, how does it add anything to your life as a child of God when it does nothing but dulls your spiritual senses? And is at the heart of so many destructive things in our world today? As for me, you know, I decided a long time ago to let alcohol go. It wasn't I felt guilty drinking in moderation because I didn't. It's that I knew it was something that, that didn't do anything for me in a spiritual sense any longer. In fact, I knew how it detracted from my witness and my ability to hear the Lord's voice very clearly. And I'm talking about before I was a pastor. I also knew that the Lord was asking me to let it go. And really, that was the most important point. I had been challenged by others and I'd been listening to it. And yeah, I grew up in churches where it was absolutely condemned. Look, I'm, I haven't done that with you this morning. I'm just challenging you to think about this and pray about this and hear and look at the heart of the Lord behind the scriptures and what it's saying to you as a believer. And you know, when I began to do that, I began to hear the Lord more clearly saying to me, this is not for you. Put away childish things. This is not for you. And even though drinking was not a sin, I knew that refusing the Lord's will for my life was. So I let it go. And, and, and since I've done that so many years ago, I never look back. I never look back. No regrets whatsoever. None. I don't need it. But as I also said, it isn't just alcohol that I refrain from. In as much as possible, I refrain from anything that impairs my senses and ability to see and hear clearly from the Lord or that exerts some power over me. You know, I always refer to this as my one pill experience with Oxycontin, but I have a terrible back and I had a doctor that gave me Oxycontin for my back. It was so bad. It was hurting so bad. Gave it to me. I took one pill. It made me feel so good. I was so euphoric. I could have written the best sermons in the world. And that was the first warning that I wasn't hearing from the Lord with that thing in my body. And I took the rest of the bottle and I dumped it down and I got rid of it. I went back to my doctor and said, I can't take this. I can't take this. Not just because I liked it too much, but because I realized that it was the liking of this that was causing things within me to not be able to, to be able to hear and receive from the Lord. So, so you decide for yourself, but, but I personally think the word that Paul gives to us is an important word worth all of us considering. I think it really is the definitive word. It's not every little innuendo that we can pull from scripture on whether alcohol is, you know, okay, or drinking's okay, or it's not okay, or this is okay, or that's not okay. I really think that what we look at and what Paul says really sums it up. Again, 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not. I will not. Well, I hope you can say that this morning with the, the resolute determination that we can almost hear in Paul's voice here. I will not be brought under the power of any. You decide. No guilt. You decide. Take it to the Lord. Second, how can we grow out of this, this Nazarene vow? Secondly, I would say that Live in a way that identifies the commitment that you've made to Christ. You know, when you look at the Nazarite, he grew his hair. She, they grew their hair so that it, it identified the commitment that they were making to the Lord in this act of worship. Now, look, this doesn't mean that you need to let your hair grow long. 
But, but to simply, it, what it means is to simply set your heart on making your commitment to the Lord visible more than just words. That, 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 that your life would speak volumes to people about who you serve and who you follow. Let the way you live your life, the way you behave in life, visibly demonstrate the life of separation that you've chosen to live for Jesus. Don't be a closet Christian. Always keep in mind Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Look, living your Christianity openly and in a clearly visible way will make your life spiritual spiritually healthier and stronger. It'll, 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 be, it'll enable you to become bolder in, in your walk in the Lord. It just does. Of course, I, 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 the caveat to this is be careful to do this in the right spirit, in the right way. I am not suggesting that you should, you know, put on the air of a Pharisee, act like that, or, you know, the, the religious lady, you know, or whatever, not to be those things. You know, Jesus rebuked that kind of nonsense. Don't do anything that, that you're doing it in order to draw attention to yourself or to present some false spiritual appearance, but do things that will draw attention to the one whom you've committed your life to. And who now lives in you, or as you say, he he dwells in me. Then let that be known. Let that be seen by the conformity of your life to his will. Third, we learn from the Nazarite vow to live a separated life for Jesus. It's a little bit different than living in a way that identifies it, but living a separated life for Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, the Nazarite was to stay away from the dead things. In the same way, I'd say that we're to stay away from the spiritually dead places and dead things of this world. You can't hang around the dead and decaying things of this world and live a deeper commitment to the Lord. You just can't do it. You'll struggle spiritually, and you'll end up being weakened by these things. Don't go near the corpses of your past life before Christ. Don't get polluted by the stuff of the world that's, that's dying. The, 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 the worldly, fleshy stuff that has no future, spending your time around that, because if you do, it's going to drag you to a place you don't need to be. Don't get polluted by these things, even if everyone else is going there. Don't you do it. You don't need to. And even if it's people that are close to you that are doing it, don't go near these dead things. Remember what Jesus said about your commitment to him. It must even be greater than your commitment to those that you love dearly. You have been called to a different kind of life, a separated life. Just as Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 declares, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So begin living it. Begin living it. So those three things, you know, those three things, I think we can draw the Nazarite vow. We don't need to run back and do the Nazarite vow in the same sense. But I think, you know, th these principles are just awesome. Refrain from anything that impairs clarity of mind or dulls your spiritual senses. And then live in a way that identifies the commitment that you've made to Jesus. And finally, live a separated life for Christ. Live that separated life. Amen.
Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, let's continue on this morning and we'll finish up this passage. So if you'll jump with me down to uh, verse 21, which is where we left off last week. Look at verse 21. So Zacharias has now gotten this message from the angel that's come, Gabriel, it's come and given it to him about this son that would be born. And of course, we left off last week in verse 20 dealing with Zacharias. Uh, just he's having some disbelief issues, um, some faith issues on this whole thing. And so the angel says, because you don't believe, you're not going to be able to talk until the child is born. And then when you do, his name's going to be John. And we'll come to that later on. But here in verse 21 says, and the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. The people who were waiting outside were getting concerned that, that it was taking Zacharias too long to complete his duties inside the temple. You see, they were fearful that maybe what he was doing wasn't acceptable, that something had happened to him in there. And, and when it says they marveled, it doesn't mean that they were amazed, but it simply implies that they were getting unsettled and they were wondering why it was taking him so long to perform his duties without coming out. And this is, again, because the custom was for the priest to come back out of the temple as soon as he was finished praying to assure the people that he had not been struck dead by God. And Zacharias's delay was apparently starting to make the crowd a bit nervous that God hadn't received his prayers on their behalf and that Zacharias might not be coming back out. Aren't you glad that we no longer live under such things? I know that I am. We no longer need to anyone to go before God on our behalf. And we no longer need to fear that when we take our petitions before him, that there's going to be some formality that he expects of us, that if we don't meet that formality, we're going to mess it up. And he's going to smush us with his big thumb because we didn't do some things right. Look, Hebrews 4, 14 and 16 speaks to the believer. It says this, Hebrews 4, beginning verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the access all of us have if our faith is in Christ. We can come boldly. We don't come timidly. We don't come fearfully. We don't even need to worry because we're coming through Christ. He's our mediator. He's the one that we're coming in through. And it's his righteousness that covers us. And honestly, it's his, it's he, it's Jesus that purifies his spirit, that purifies our prayers in the presence of the Lord. We can come boldly before him. But here the people are unsettled. They don't know what's going on. Look at verse 22. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and, and remained speechless. Now, it was customary for the priest, when he came out, to bless the people. He would recite the ironic blessing found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. As he emerged from burning incense in the temple, he would come out and he'd say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And out comes Zacharias. And here's the people, they're waiting for this, this ironic blessing to be given. And he emerges and he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He can't do it. And they realize that something has happened. 
And, and most likely he's using some hand gestures to, to make clear to them that something had taken place because it tells us that they realize in the midst of this that he had seen some kind of vision in the temple and that he was unable to speak because of it. And although there's no indication at this point that he had in any way to explain to them why, somehow they knew he was communicating somehow without speech. I know that there are probably some of you who from time to time wish that God would send an angel to some of us preachers so that we would have a similar experience so that it would shut our mouths for a while too. <laughs> but, but in this case, it really did. Well, look on at verse 23. Verse 23. I got to tell you, it's, it's hard making a joke without you guys sitting here because it's just silent. <laughs> of course, sometimes I tell my jokes and it would be silent, but that's all right. Verse 23. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And so this opening act, if you will, of these, these two individuals, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the curtain begins to close at this point. He goes home and, and they're waiting this out. They're waiting for this child of promise that had been given to them, this servant that would come, who we know will be John the Baptist to come. And in the meantime, our attention now will turn in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So next week, we'll come back and we'll take a look at Joseph and Mary before we return again to John the Baptist. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.